Right, let's go tonight to the book of Judges. Um, we would have done this last week had we been able to get up the hill, but that wasn't going to happen. And so we'll wrap this up. We'll wrap this up tonight. The book of Judges. Last time we met a couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 17 and 18. Do you remember that? We talked about this. Uh, we talked about this guy named Micah, who just kind of kind of made his own little religion up. He got himself a priest and he got himself some idols and he's just going to have his own little church in his house. And, and then a bunch of people from the tribe of Dan came and they stole his priest and they stole his idols. And, and he asked the question, he says, what more do I have? I, you've taken everything from me. Well, I'm thankful we have a God and we serve a God that nobody can steal from us. Nobody can carry him off. Uh, Micah's serving these false little idols and these idols that... You remember that story? I mean, how warped was his mother's thinking? He took, uh, he took the precious metals that she was going to melt down, have made to idols, and dedicate them to the Lord and give them to her son. It was just such a mess in the way she thought. And that's why the Bible says even back in, in those earlier chapters it's the, that we looked at last week, chapter 17, everybody was just doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, we, we talked about that, and we talked about how the Danites came and uh, they took all of that away, and, and here was the application on that that we made. That's, the, that's the, the reality for every person that worships any other God other than the true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have your God taken away just that quickly. You can only worship the true God and keep him forever. Uh, he can't save if he's not the true God, and so worship the right God. Uh, Micah didn't, and he paid for it. Well, now we come to Judges chapters 19, 20, and 21, and this wraps up the book. And these chapters, you know the last, you know the last verse of the book says everybody's doing right that's in their own eyes. Chapters 19 and 20 and 21 demonstrate that. These are, uh, and we're not going to look at them tonight verse by verse, but suffice it to say, they are some of the most graphic chapters in the entire Bible, Old or New Testament. The story here is so perverse that you don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. It's absolutely, when, when the Bible says everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, it is absolutely not kidding. Let's, let's, just, let's just go through the story of chapters 19 and 20. Well, 19, 20, and, and 21. Let's do that. Chapter 19, there's a Levite who has a concubine. A concubine is a second-class wife. There's no other way to put it. Married, but not the most important person in the, in the uh, household. This Levite has this concubine. He's traveling with her. They are traveling. They come to this one place, and uh, the guy offers some lodging for the night, food. Come in and come in and stay with me. And, and the, the Levite and his concubine, his wife, they go in and stay. And they wake up the next morning. They're getting, getting ready to leave. He says, why don't you stay just a little bit longer? So they stay a little bit longer and they eat a little bit. And he's invited to make his heart merry, which means let's sit down, drink wine, and get drunk. Well, he says, no, I got to get going. Then he gets an invitation on his trip to stop at this other place. He says, no, I don't want to stop here. We're going to keep going until we get through this particular region. We want to get to this certain destination. So they finally come to this house uh, or this town, and he doesn't really know anybody there. Nobody will take him in, so he's just sitting on the side of the road. He's found some 
uh, he's found some feed for his animals. And he's, he and his, his concubine are just sitting on the side of the road. And this old man comes in from the field. And he says, what are you doing here? He said, we're just passing through and I can't find any place to stay tonight. We're just going to stay out the street. And the guy says, no, let's not do that. And he said, let's you come into my house. So he invites this man and his concubine, his second class wife, invites him into his house. And while they're in the house, if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, this will sound very familiar. While they're in the house, the Bible says that a bunch of bisexual men come and start banging on the door of the house, asking for the owner of the house to send that man out. And the Bible says it like this, send that man out that we can know him. What it's talking about is they're going to sexually abuse that man. And the uh, the owner of the house says, no, I can't do that. Uh, that would be against the law for me to turn a guest out into such, into such treatment. I can't do that. After going back and forth, the Levite takes his concubine and says, you can have, imagine this. A Levite is one who serves at the tabernacle. He's committed his life to serving Jehovah God. And he takes his wife and he opens the door, pushes her out, shuts the door behind her, and tells those bisexual men, do with her whatever you want. And they do. They sexually abuse her through the whole night so much that she dies. The Bible said they turned her loose. She crawled back up to the door of the house and she died right at the threshold of the door. The man opens up, the Levite opens the door in the morning and says, come on, let's go. We got to get going. Can you imagine that? He says, get you up. She doesn't move. It dawns on him she is dead. So he picks her up and he takes her back to his house, takes her corpse back to his house. He cuts her body up into 12 pieces and sends a piece of her body to each of the 12 tribes. Now, let me pause here and say this. This is not a parable. This is a real live historical story. This is a man who's dedicated his life to serving God, theoretically. He dismembers his, his concubine, sends pieces of her body all over the country and says, now we're going to do something about this. That's chapter 19. Do you have a hard time listening to that story? Because can I tell you something? I have a hard time repeating that story in here tonight. That story sickens me. What kind, of, what kind of man saved or unsaved? What kind of man thinks that way? It's a person who's doing what's right in their own eyes. Somehow, in his perverted mind, he justified what he did. And then he sent the pieces of her body all over the country and said, we need to do something about this. Chapter 20 is the nation's response to this atrocity. Do you know how the nation of Israel responded? The tribes sent 400,000 armed soldiers to deal with those men from the tribe of Benjamin that did this to this woman. They sent 400,000 soldiers. The Bible says all of them were carrying swords. Chapter 20 says they come and they attacked the Benjaminites who at first, here, here, now they, they started it right. They said, give us those men that did this. We're going to deal with them. The tribe of Benjamin said, no, we're not going to give them up. Instead, they sent 26,000 special ops guys 
out to fight 400,000. In the first day of battle, the tribe of Benjamin, who only had 26,000 men, killed 22,000 of that 400,000 man army. So the big army pulled back. They went out the second day, same results. They killed 18,000 on the second day. And the third day, when they, finally, when they finally go out there, with God's enablement, the Bible says that Israel killed 25,100 Benjamite soldiers on day number three. Remember, they only started with 26,000. They nearly wiped out the entire uh, young, man pre young male presence in the tribe of Benjamin. Well, that's chapter number 20, Israel's response to that terrible atrocity. In chapter 21, the nation of Israel realizes we just about wiped out one of our tribes. We've got 12 tribes. We just about wiped the whole tribe out. Now they don't have, uh, they don't have hardly anyone left. What can we do to help them? When you read chapter number 21 and they realize what they've done, they came up with a plan to get a bunch of young wives. Because let me pause and say this. When they slew the Benjamites, uh, they were slaying men and women. Israel went in. They were killing men and women. So in chapter 21, they came up with this plan to get wives for the tribe of Benjamin. And here's the plan they came up with. They went into a certain village called Jabesh Gilead. And they slaughtered everybody in that village except the young virgins. They killed everybody else. Then they took those women and they took them to the tribe of Benjamin and says, here's women for you to continue your tribe. And then they said this, if that's not enough, then you can go and you can get the virgins that are serving at Shiloh and take them to be brides as well. Do you know what was at Shiloh? The tabernacle. It's where those women were who had dedicated themselves basically to be like Nazarites. They had dedicated their lives to serving the Lord. They would never know a man. And Israel said, if you need more wives, Go get the virgins that are serving at the tabernacle. Does this, sound like, does this sound like the nation of Israel is spiraling? I hope it does. I hope when you hear this story, you think to yourself, what in the world is going on among the people of God? These are God's chosen people that he, he brought out of Egypt. What an absolute mess. Morally, they are completely gone. Look at chapter number 21. And verse number 25, because this is the summation of the book. Last verse in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It says the same thing back in chapter number 17 um, in verse number 6. So chapter 17, remember chapter 17 happened sometimes sometime after the death of Samson, and we don't have any more judges named after that. Chapter 17 starts the, the end by saying everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes, and when it does end, everybody's still doing what's right in their own eyes. They have no moral compass at all. So here's how we, here's how we summarize that. Such is the thought life of those who are postmodern or post-Christian in their thinking. What is right is merely a matter of opinion. 
if you're, th- if you're, if you're post-modern in your thinking or post-Christian in your thinking, that means that you say something like this. Well, you may not say it because we don't like to say this, but this is how we act. You've heard this before. The postmodernist says your definition of right and my definition of right, even though they might differ, are what's right for us. What's right for you is right for you, but I may not think that's right. And what's right for me is right for me, but you may not think it's right, and that's okay. There's the phrase today, and, you, and this is how it's cloaked today, and I've told you I don't like this phrase at all. It's, this is my truth. This is my truth. I'm sorry, but you and I don't get to define truth. That's, that's not how this works. I don't get to define what's right or wrong. You don't get to define what's right or wrong because we're not the author of law. God defines, God defines that. A person who lives like this with whatever is right is for you is fine, but whatever is right for me, that has to be fine too. A person that lives like that, is sim- he, he simply defines right as they go through life. And so they are always going to be changing what is morally acceptable. If you live your life without some standard outside of you as as what is right or wrong, you will always be adjusting what is right and wrong. And this is not new to us. We attach labels like postmodern or post-Christian to it. But even, even back in the book of Isaiah, they were saying there were those that were calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. You remember that? The words were actually good and evil. They call good, evil, and evil, good. This has been going on since man came around. All the way back to the garden. We can justify it once we take away God's standard of what is right and wrong. So you and I have to let God say this is right or this is wrong. And then we have to agree with that. They lived, every man doing that which was right in their own eyes. The result of doing that is described in Romans chapter 1. So I'd like for the rest of our time, I'd like for us to turn to Romans chapter 1 and see what that looks like, what that leads to. Because this is still going on in in our world and in our day. And Romans chapter 1 describes... uh, the end result of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. What does it look like? Well, it looks like the world in which you and I live. I had to fill out some forms. Uh, I had to fill out some forms at a doctor's office recently, and it asked for the gender, uh, the gender which I was assigned at birth. I almost, just, I almost just crossed that whole question out. All I need is a box to check, male or female. That's all I need. And this is ridiculous. But this is what happens when everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. Well, Romans 1 describes this. So here's what I want to do. What does it look like when everyone defines right as they go through their life? I, I called this lesson tonight, Defining Right As You Go. And what I mean by that is you just bebop through life and you just define right however you want to. At whatever stage of life you're in, then you can adjust the right and wrong for that stage of life. Well, that's absolutely ludicrous, but that's what's going on in our world today. Not just in our country, but in our world. So what does Romans say 
Uh, Romans 1, what does it say about this? So let's make our way through a few verses, starting at verse number 18, and we'll go to verse number 32. First thing, there is a blindness required, a blindness that's required. Look at verse number 18 in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, mark this, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What is he saying? He's saying this. If nothing else, creation tells you there's a God. This is clearly seen. I mean, hundreds of years ago, they had a telescope and looked up in the sky, and they saw these things out in the sky, and they had no idea the universe was as big as it is. And here we are hundreds of years, four or 500 years later, they're still learning that they don't know where the end of the universe is. We know that there is a God. He says you, can, you know that simply by the fact that you're here and you can see what you see. That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. But it says, I want you to notice a verse or a word, rather, in verse, uh, in verse number 18. The last phrase says, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That little four-letter word, hold, would you mark that in your mind? Or write this definition down? It means to have the truth. That phrase is saying, when he's holding it in unrighteousness, he has the truth, but he's suppressing it. Or, he's or smothering it or denying it. To hold the truth in unrighteousness means that they see creation. They see the planets and the stars, the mountains, the wildlife. They see all of these things, but they hold it in unrighteousness. They're suppressing that truth. They're denying it. They're smothering it. Plenty of evidence, but they simply reject it. Why do you think a missionary, and we, used, we, we can read those stories of missionaries who've gone into dark, uh, dark places, isolated places where no Christian has ever been. In fact, they may not even know there's other people in the planet. Yet they get back into those places where no one's ever been and no internet and no, no television, no outside influence, and they find those people worshiping. Why are they worshiping back there? Because they know. There's the things in this world that are clearly seen. Nobody told them about God. Nobody told them about Jesus. And yet they're worshiping something bigger. They have some type of worship system. Now let me say this. It might be sickening. It may involve child sacrifice or animal sacrifice. It may involve terrible things. But my point is, they're worshiping. There's two reasons that cause them to worship. First of all, they know that they've done something to anger the gods. And they're just trying to appease the gods. Well, that's a recognition of sin. They don't call it sin, but they know that they have to appease the gods for some reason. And then they do those things. Something has to be done in order to avert that judgment, to avoid being judged. They've got to do something. I remember uh, 
I remember, I think it was Bill and Lemoyne Cunningham when they were here talking about Indonesia where Hinduism is, is big and, and they were talking about how you walk down the streets. And I know that's like that in India where you walk down the streets and there's all these little altars on the side of the road with fruit in them. People are just putting out things. They're doing something to appease those gods. Why? Because in a perverted way, they know they need deliverance from the God's judgment. Something in them is telling you, that's what verses 18 through 20 are talking about. These things are clearly seen. They know they've done wrong, the gods are upset, and they have to do something to appease them. Well, that's the beginnings of what we do as Christians. We know there's a God, we know we've sinned, and something has to be done to avert his judgment. Verse 19 says that people inherently know there is one that needs to be worshipped. That's what it talks about because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath shown it unto them. There's an Egyptian god by the name of Osiris. Osiris was a good god that was killed by his brother Set. His body was dismembered, but a goddess by the name of Isis came in and put his body back together and resurrected Osiris. Now I know that sounds nothing like Christianity unless you make this unless you make this parallel. There's a good man that came. He was killed by his brothers, the Jews, but after he died he was resurrected. Now in Egyptian in Egyptian pagan religion, there is a story of one who was killed by his brother died and was resurrected in christianity jesus came was crucified rejected by his brethren and crucified the jews and after he died he was resurrected what my point is this there is a blindness in people if they're going to do what's right in their own eyes because they know in their hearts there's a god there's a god the evidence is clearly seen now, I know it's general revelation. I know that knowing that God created the stars and the planets and the mountains, I know that that cannot save people, but it points them to a God. And in order for them to do what's right in their own eyes, they have to suppress that with a blindness. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. You've heard this word. This word in whom the God of this world hath blinded, the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. They're blinded. There is a blindness required. If you're going to do what's right in your own eyes, then you have to suppress, with spiritual blindness, you have to suppress the knowledge of God. President Lincoln said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look upon the earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how that man could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. It's not enough to believe that God created everything, but it's a start. It points you to the God that is to be served. I, Satan believes, his angels believe, but they're never going to be saved. But they know there's a God. There's a blindness that's required. If you're going to do what's right, if you all are going to decide what's right in your own eyes, or if I'm going to decide what's right in my own eyes, then I have to suppress the revelation of God that's born in me. 
as one who's made in the image of God, there is something in me that says there is a greater being than me. I have to suppress that. The beliefs that we hold must be right, but if we determine what is right, if we determine what's right, then our beliefs are certainly going to be wrong. We have to, we have to recognize, first of all, there's a blindness that's involved. If people are going to do what's right in their own eyes, there's a blindness that's involved, and they've, they've decided to suppress that knowledge of God. Second thing, the blindness that's involved. The second thing, the beliefs that are invoked. Verses 21 through 25. Same thing, Romans 1, verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I, I honestly think there are certain people in our world, this ought to be the tattoo that gets marked on them. They ought to be tattooed, branded, or something, that they have professed themselves to be wise, but they are fools. Verse 23 says, after they did this, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Let's stop right there because this is, those are, those are really full verses. We need to, and I need to talk faster, I know. These are the beliefs that are invoked. That's what's being described now. What these folks, these folks have, have suppressed the knowledge of God. Now they're choosing to believe some things. And here's, here's how they go. In verses 21 and 22, you have man's move toward atheism. His move toward atheism, the, the denial of God, absolutely. The more educated mankind has become, the more highly he thought of himself and not God. You know, the more we learn about DNA and the complexities of DNA and, and all of that, and the things go on in our science classes, the more we learn about that, the more, and, and how complex all of that is, it ought to drive us to think that there has to be an architect. I, there is nothing, let me say this, there is nothing in the world, <coughs> not, a, not above the ocean or below the ocean, there is nothing in the world that as the result of an explosion creates order. Nowhere. It's never been, it's, it's never found. The only place that takes place is in the mind of those who professing to themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's the only place it, that's the only place it occurs. No other place does an explosion lead to life or lead to death. It just doesn't happen. Man's move toward atheism. One British scientist said this. It seems this was in the Saturday Evening Post, July 3rd, 1965. This, this guy in his article called The Secret Life said this. It seems pretty certain to me that life resulted from purely chemical events. What is more, I feel certain that in another decade or two, we ourselves will be able to create life. 
I no longer find it necessary to believe in God. That was in 1965, so we are now almost six decades removed. You know what we haven't figured out? How to make life. That's what we haven't figured out. He was, listen, I feel certain that in another decade or two, we will be able to create life. Now, I'm imagining him being an old man when he said that, so I think he's, I think he's learned when he died, everything he said in that statement was false. But this is the direction people are going, and they're going there quickly. There's no need for I, I no longer find it necessary to believe in God. Verse 22, the death of common sense. We think we are so smart, but we're not professing themselves. I'm, these guys stand up and they've got their, they got their coats on, their lab coats on or $500 ties or whatever they're wearing and they've got more letters after their name than comprise their name itself and talk about how wise they are and they're saying such stupid things. You're sitting there looking at him. you're like, this man thinks he's, he's right. And I'm Joe, nobody sitting over here in Talbot, Tennessee thinking, I think this guy's lost his mind. And people look at me like I'm the ignorant one. And they look at you like you're the ignorant one. Just to say that there's a God that created everything. It makes far more sense to me that the complexities in a DNA molecule were designed rather than accidentally occurred. Man's move toward atheism. It says in verse number 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Did you know the Greek word for fools is the same word you and I get moron from? Uh, if that helps you at all, I'm, I, I put those two the same thing. Man's move toward atheism in verses 21 and 22. Verses 23 through 25, man's move toward idolatry. We found something else to worship. We don't need God anymore, this British scientist said, so we find someone else to worship. It says in 23, they changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image likened to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie, worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is so evident today. Worshiping the creature more than the creator. Look, I, I, like, I like pets. I, you know, we've had dogs, we've had cats, we've had fish. When I was a kid and it was still legal, we had turtles. There's nothing wrong with pets. But I am convinced, and there are Christians as guilty as others, we are putting way too much attention and affection on creatures, and it's not matched by our love for God. I see people post far more about their pets than I do about their God. I'd be careful here. If you're offended by that, you just take it for what it's worth. But this is, this is being fleshed out here. Do you know how many... I, I can't remember. The last time I looked... The, the United States of America spent something like $20 billion in one year in, just in health care for their pets. Forget food, uh, forget whatever bedding you have to buy for whatever kind of animal you have, just taking them to the vet, $20 billion. That's insane. That's just insane. We are Romans 1 in this country. I drive up through Cincinnati to go see my family in Michigan. You know what I drive by in Cincinnati? A pet hotel. That's the truth. A pet hotel. 
This is insane. But you know what? It was predicted. Paul said to the Roman church, there's coming a day when people are going to worship their, their pets more than they worship the one who made them. And that's exactly what goes on. Man, it says here that he made his idols. I think I left it on your worksheet. Man first designs idols, but then he's deceived by them. We think this is a good thing, but it isn't. It's not going to help us. Listen to Psalm 106, verse 35 and following. It says, but were mingled, talking about God's people, mingled among the heathen and learned their works and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with their blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went whoring with their own inventions. Now, we have different kinds of idols in 21st century America. Our idols are not little graven images, are they? Our idols are, uh, our idols are entertainment or sports. Somebody said our, our, our temples are sports arenas now. Education, wealth, health. We worship our health, even our religion. It's possible for us to put our religion before the Lord. We're talking a little bit about that on Sundays now. I'm just, I'm just saying, in verse 25, it talks about them rejecting the word of God. It says they changed the truth of God to a lie. And then it also said they rejected not only God's word, but they rejected God's position. It says they worshiped and served the creature instead of the creator. They rejected his word. They rejected his position. And this is what's going on. So you have this blindness that first says, okay, well, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. But to do that, I have to suppress what's in me that I know there's a God I have to answer to one day. I know there's a God that made all this. I, I was watching this, uh, I can't remember if it was a guy named Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro. I think it was Matt Walsh who did this movie here a while back. And he went around, I don't know if you saw this or not, and I'm not endorsing or anything Matt Walsh. I just watched this movie because was, it was recommended to me. So he goes around, and all he does is ask people to define what is a woman. Just tell me what a woman is. Just what's a woman. He had a U.S. congressman got up and ended an interview stormed out of the room because, because Matt Walsh asked him that question. Can you define what a woman is? I, I just want you to tell me what a woman is. That congressman got so mad, he ended the interview. He went from all the wonderful, educated people in America, and he's walking down the street and just ticking people off by asking them to define a woman. He goes over to Africa, and he goes to some tribe on the backside of nowhere, and these, these men, they come out, and I don't know if there's any women with them or not, but these men come out, and they're watching this TV crew and this white American come over there, and, and he has to talk through a translator to this chief. He's only talking to the chief, and the men are just in the background. And he talks to the chief, and, and uh, he said, chief, he said, what? And he was being respectful and everything. He said, what is a woman? And the chief said, they're the ones who can bear the children in our tribe. That was it. 
They're the ones who can bear children in our tribe. And so Matt Walsh says, what would you think about a man who started living like a woman? And the chief didn't know how to respond to that thinking. There was this puzzled look on that chief's face like, I, I don't even know what would cause you to ask me that question. That's how it came across. And so Matt Walsh went further with it. He said, what would you think about a man who only not wanted to be a woman? He did everything he possibly could to become a woman. And when he translated that, you could see all the men in the back of that thing. They just started laughing. That was the most foolish thing. The chief said, that's the most foolish thing I've ever heard. And yet all over our world, court cases are being won in support of this foolishness. This is the craziest thing I've seen in my lifetime, is this transgenderism nonsense and foolishness. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. How much common sense do we have to deny in this world to endorse this thinking? Nothing, nothing supports this unless I'm doing what is right in my own eyes. We should, we should uh, have a discussion on this sometime in one of our services. I listened to an interview of a man who surgically was transitioned to female, did all of the hormones, did everything, um, became suicidal, went to his doctor and said, I, I made a terrible mistake. We've got to fix this. You know what the doctor told him and every doctor he saw afterwards? You can't. You can't fix this. It's, it's irreversible. What you've done is irreversible. This is the result of, of men and women doing what's right in their own eyes. It just makes no sense. Well, the last thing I want to share with you, we've got 10 minutes, is verses 26 through 32. We're going to go quickly through this. But when you suppress with blindness the God that's out there, when you suppress what's in you that there is a God, and there's something in us that says there is a God who made all this to whom I have to answer, when we suppress that and we adopt the beliefs that come along with that, that there is no God and that it's okay to worship something else, when we take that course, there is going to be behavior exhibited. And this is the last one. Point number three, the behavior exhibited. Without God's definition saying this is right and this is wrong. Nope, everybody's going to do what's right in their own eyes. Okay, then there are some things that are going to happen. Now we're going to make our way through a long list here from verses 26 to 32. All you have to do is tell me if these things are evident in our culture and society today. That's all you have to, you don't have to tell me. You just do it in your own, in your own brain. See if this is not evident. When you deny God's standard of right and wrong, when you adopt the beliefs that come from such thinking, that I can do whatever I want, there is no God, I can worship what I choose, God says this is what's going to happen. Start at verse number 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, 
working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. May I cause here and give you, and give you a good working definition of reprobate mind. Note that it says God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That word reprobate means unable to discern right and wrong. Once that line is crossed, they are no longer able to know right and wrong. That's a reprobate mind, a mind without moral judgment. No holds barred now. What happens then? When, when they've given over to a reprobate mind, what's going to happen? Okay, verse number 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, boy, this is a scary verse, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That is an ominous verse. I, I would mark this. I, I would mark verse number 32. They know that doing these things leads to death. And the Bible says this, they take pleasure in it. Take pleasure in them. I'd be careful what you laugh at. I'd be careful what you laugh at. The Bible says fools make a mock of sin. Same word as morons. Be careful with that. Let's run down this list. There are two categories in all that long list from 26 to 32. There are, there are two categories. The first category is sinful acts. The second category are sinful attitudes. Sinful acts and then sinful attitudes. And he lists the sinful acts. Uh, he lists, first of all, homosexuality. Women with women, men with men. He lists that homosexuals present their chosen lifestyle as a normal sexual orientation, God says it's not. That should end the debate, but unfortunately, even in churches, it doesn't end the debate. Again, we just decided we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. But God says it's wrong. Same-sex uh, orientation is aberrant, it's abnormal, and it's an abomination to God. There's no debate in that. Not in the scripture. There is no debate in that. In this generation, I, I'm telling you, in this generation, I, I feel sorry for this generation of young people. Same-sex relationships existing in the middle schools and in the upper elementary schools today. Because in the home, it's presented as absolutely fine. It, it, it talks about fornication. It talks about, uh, and fornication, you know this. I, we've mentioned this before. The Greek word for fornication in the New Testament is porneia. It's the same word that we get pornography from. It is an umbrella term that encompasses every sexual sin. 
So homosexuality falls under fornication. Adultery falls under fornication. Pornography falls under fornication. Fornication is an umbrella, and it, it refers to every sexual sin. And then he also talks about murder in here. Murder is homicide. It's not capital punishment. Capital punishment is not a crime. Capital punishment is a sentence. The Bible says we're not to murder people. Those are the sinful acts that are mentioned. But God says, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. God spends far more time on the sinful attitudes than he does the acts. Here's a good place to say God looks on the heart. He talks about the attitudes a lot. We don't have a whole lot of time. Boy, you're going to have to write fast. If you're, going to, if you're going to try, here we go. Let's just make our way down the list. Covetousness, you know what that is. It's greed. Maliciousness, evil doing. Just look, they look for ways to do evil. They're malicious. Envy is jealousy. The word debate means to be quarrelsome. They just want to argue. They're argumentative people. I, I love those people. I like poke them in the eye. They just, all they want to do is fight. If you say it's, it's black, they'll say it's white. If you say it's raining outside, they'll say, no, the sun is shining. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. They just like to debate. They like to uh, be contentious. Deceit. That word deceit literally means a decoy. It's a, pers it's a person who intentionally crafts a lie. Malignity talks about one who has bad character. Whisperers and backbiters. They tell secrets. They're usually slanderous. The backbiters are those who speak against other people, obviously, behind their back. Haters of God. Uh, that word, the haters of God, that is actually a, uh, it comes from a Greek, a Greek phrase that literally means to make God obsolete. That's interesting. Haters of God. Despiteful. That means they hurt, uh, they hurt people by insult. You know what pride is. Boasters, they brag on themselves, inventors of evil things. They have a habit of devising absolutely worthless plans and sometimes harmful. Inventors of evil things. And that next one, does it grab you that it's in the list? Disobedient to parents. That tells you what God thinks of disobedience to parents. We're in a list here that includes murderers and homosexuals and people that are assassinating other people's character, and he throws in disobedient to parents. God takes that seriously. Without understanding, it says, no discernment. You remember what I, I've said this a couple times. John MacArthur said the greatest need in the American church today is it's the lack of discernment. And that's what that without understanding means. Covenant breakers, they don't keep their word. Without natural affection. I don't understand how a parent can murder their child. I don't understand how a brother can murder his sister or rape his sister. I, I don't understand how children can kill their parents. I, I don't get that until I come to Romans chapter 1 and I, I come to the culture that says, well, we can all do what's right in our own eyes, and we learn that they no longer have natural affection. I don't know how a husband beats his wife. Or in some cases, how the wife beats her husband. I, I went to a call one time up in Montana. We had a, a lady in our church that took a lamp pole in their home to her husband and beat the fire out of him. 
I don't, I don't understand how that happens between a husband and a wife whose marriage is supposed to project the love of Christ for his church. Implacable. That means they're absolutely committed to nothing. Implacable. Unmerciful. This is, listen, all of these things. This is how God describes people who are doing that which is right in their own eyes. This is the result of it. This is what it looks like. This is what was going on in the the book of Judges. This is how that Levite justified taking his concubine and turning her out for the night to be used by a bunch of bisexual men. Because his mind had been given over by God to a reprobate state. And he was no longer able to determine what was right and what was wrong. It's a mind without moral judgment. It's a terrible state these people are in. Why does God spend so much time on wrong attitudes, sinful attitudes, more than the sinful acts themselves? It's because of this statement. It's on your worksheet. Wrong thinking and wrong behavior go hand in hand. If I'm thinking wrong, I'm going to be wrong. But if I'm thinking right, according to scripture, I'm going to, I'm going to live right. Those things just take place. Verse 20 says these people are without excuse. And verse 28 says they've been given over to a reprobate mind. And I haven't studied this enough yet. So I can't answer the question. But, there is a, but there's a possibility that once you're given over to that reprobate mind, you've, caught, you've crossed the line of God's grace. You remember there's that verse back in, in Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapter 6 at the beginning where God said this, my spirit's not always going to strive with man. There's indication in Old Testament and New Testament that there will come a time when God will quit convicting the heart. When that happens, that person cannot be saved because Jesus himself said no one comes to, the, to me except the Father draws him. And if God's not convicting you, You can't be saved. There's a line of thought that says the reprobate mind is that line. I've talked to police officers in various states who deal with sexually deviant crimes. And their opinion, Christian and non-Christian officers, their opinion is that many of the people they deal with cannot be rehabilitated from that sexual deviance. That that goes right along with Romans 128. God has given them over. This is what you want? Then you get the end result of it. Israel wanted idolatry. God said, that's what you want? Okay. And God sells them off into Babylon, the most idolatrous country in the world. So there's a time when God's just had enough of it. And Romans 128 describes that time. He's given them over to a reprobate mind. They're not coming back. So how do we wrap this up tonight? These are the results of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. So you and I are living today in Romans chapter 1. We live in this culture. So what do you do? As a young person, as a teenager, living for Christ in your schools, as an adult, on your job, in your home or neighborhood, in the, in the various arenas in which you live, what are we to do? I, I close tonight with three things. What do we do in, in this type of culture? Number one, read up. Read up. Find out what the Bible says about the values 
that you ought to hold. Everybody talks about family values. Look, there's some families out there that have terrible values. Our police officers in here will tell you about families that they dealt with where their family are criminally intent. Their, their families are cr criminally inclined. So I, whose family values? Yours, mine, his, hers? No. Read up and let God establish the values by which you're going to live. Number two, show up. Come to church. Surround yourself with godly people. Immerse yourself in the Bible study and the preaching and teaching of God's word. Show up. And the last one is speak up. Stand for what's right. I don't care if you're 11 or 12 or if you're 70 or 80. Speak up for what is right. Your life goal is not popularity. It's faithfulness before God. Read up. Show up. Speak up. You and I live in a, in a very sinful culture, and it's only going to get worse. It's going to wax worse and worse until Jesus comes back. So I have to, I have to plant, uh, to use the old, the old analogy, I have to plant a stake in the ground and say, this is what I'm holding to. I, I can't care what everybody else is doing. So they're having same-sex relationships, and that's okayed by the courts. So they're ordaining, uh, they're ordaining ministers who hold to same-sex marriage. So they're going to legalize every drug that has been illegal historically in the past. So they're going to do away with church on Sundays because we need more family time. Some things we just need to hold to. If God says it's right, I guarantee you it's right. I guarantee you it is. And if God says it's wrong, I guarantee you it's wrong. And you can live your life by that. You can live your life with a shirt. I, you know what I don't like? I don't like, uh, let me say it like this. I don't like people I have to figure out what they're trying to say to me. You know what I'm saying? I, I just don't like those people. I, I, and I'm sitting there and they're talking to me and I'm looking at them. I feel like that one cartoon character. I know you're trying to communicate with me, but I don't know what you're saying. I just like people to say what they mean. You know who does that better than anybody else? God does that. God does that. He tells me, he tells me how to avoid the pitfalls that this lousy, sinful, wicked, evil world lays for me. He tells me how to avoid those pitfalls. Whether it's in my marriage, or in my work, or in my ministry, or in my, my recreation time, he tells me how to avoid those pitfalls. David said things like, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Do you know how broad that brush paints? That's when I'm sitting in front of my computer. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. That's when I crack open a book. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. That's when I choose to go to this place or that place. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Do you know how many pitfalls I avoided in just those four things right there? I, I'm telling you, church, you live in a pornographic society. I live in a pornographic society. We need to let God's word define what's right and wrong, not do what's right in our own eyes. That's very popular today, but don't do it. It's a trap. It is a baited hook. Don't do it. Let God's word, Im let him immerse your mind in what he calls truth. And then go with it.
then go with it. And if God says it's truth, count on it. Truth is what you judge everything else by. It's the standard. If something is true, it lines up with truth. God's word, Jesus said, thy word is truth. Father, thank you for your word. It's a confusing world that we live in if we get away from what you say is right and wrong. We listen to smart people or professing smart people every day justify what you call sin and wickedness. They go away from your ideal for the family. They hate the existence of an unshakable and unmovable truth. They reject the idea that there's only one God and one way to come to him in Jesus Christ. And Lord, you've given us the privilege and the call and the responsibility to stand for these things. I pray for our young people and the world that they're growing up in. May they avoid the confusion and the lure of this world. And I pray for parents and grand, grandparents who are raising their kids. I pray for us as we try to reach our community and we discern what missionaries to partner with so we can keep a clear trumpet sound going Lord, that this is truth that we're dealing with, and we don't want to be poisoned by what's not true. So we need your help to keep our minds safe and to keep our minds right. Help us to recognize your word for what it is, the very word of God. Bless these folks that have come tonight. I pray that you've profited us with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.